0: Well, amen and good morning. Good to see everybody today. My name is Travis. If this is your first time here, I want to welcome you. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm our served pastor, and it's my pleasure to be with you here this morning, and uh, happy Palm Sunday to you, if you can believe it. Next week is Easter, if you can believe that. It's April already, but we're just really glad you're here as we prepare for Holy Week here, and um, it's always my joy to be with you on the stage here and be able to open up God's word with you. I love being able to unpack this, and my hope for you this morning is that you will get something out of this, that together we can work our way through Scripture this morning, and you may be drawn to a better understanding of who Jesus is. And so we got a lot to talk about for us this morning, but we are continuing our study in the book of James this Today, throughout this month, we're going to be looking at one of my personal favorite books of all time. I love the book of James, largely because I find the story of James really interesting. I like how James writes. James is a guy who is very straightforward. He does not mince words. He's, he's, he's a lot like his older brother, Jesus, in that way. And he's got a lot that he can teach us here. But one of the things that we've been looking at in, in the book of James is, is, even in just the first chapter, we're exploring this idea... Of What does it mean to live out our faith? What does it mean when, when, when we say as believers that we have faith in Christ, what are we ultimately saying to that end? What does it mean to actually be a, a, a Christian, and especially as James has already been talking about in this first chapter we're looking at what does it mean to live out faith despite the circumstances? What does it look like to hold true and fast to our faith, even in the midst of trials and tribulations? And as we'll see even today, what does it look like to live out faith, even in our own inner struggles? And so today, more particularly, what we're going to look like is one of the great lines from this book, one that you already just heard, is this idea of not just hearing God's Word, but following it. Even more important, though, what we're going to see as we unpack this idea is what looks like on the surface a seemingly contradictory statement, which is that when we follow the law of God, we experience freedom. And I've got a lot more that I want to say about that, but this this idea that freedom is actually going to be found in how well we follow a particular law. My hope, though, is is today the ultimate key to responding to trials and resisting temptation will be found in our reaction to God's Word and how we view it and how we value it. Because what James is going to teach us is that our receptivity, our responsiveness, and ultimately our resignation to God and His Word are essential to our growth as believers. So, If you have a copy of scripture, I want to invite you to turn to James chapter 1, and as you're turning there, let me pray for us this morning. God, it is good to be in your presence this morning. It is good to be here on a beautiful day. We thank you for the many gifts that you've given us, and and God, I want to thank you most importantly for your son and for this word that you've given us, that this book was not just written to... uh, tell history, it was not just written uh, to tell the stories of people, but, God, it was written in, a, in such a way that it would draw myself and everyone in this room and in this world closer to you. And my, my simple request this morning, God, is that the Holy Spirit would teach through me that these would not be my words but rather your words that have the ability to sink down into our hearts to convict us, to guide us, to encourage us, to do the work that only he can. And so as we open up your word, would you give us clarity? Would you give us understanding? And as I said, Father, may we leave today having taken one step closer into a deeper relationship with you. And to that end, we all said, amen. So today we're going to be in James chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 19 here. But as always, I think it's good for us to set a little bit of context as to where we are. So we're just about... To finish up the first chapter here, so we're still very early on in the book, but if you were here with us last week, we, we started with James chapter 1, and, and you remember that James started talking about this, this idea of temptation, and, and this idea that all of us are facing temptation, every one of us in this room, myself included, we face temptation on a daily basis. Maybe it's a physical temptation, maybe it's just something going on in our mind, but all of us are facing temptation just like the, the recipients that James is writing to here. But look with me real quick again, James 1 verse 13. As James is talking about this, he, he, he reminds the people of this. He says, remember, when you are being tempted, do not say that God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So James very quick into his letter has begun talking about one of life's most difficult challenges and that is temptation and and he begins breaking it down here as you see by reminding the people that sin is really the is what causes the idea of temptation. That that It's because of our own brokenness, it's because of our own sin in our life that that we even have the the notion of of temptation as he guides us through. Temptation leads forth to, it births this idea of sin, right? And so what he's very clear on with us, he says, but I I need you to understand that that's not from God. Temptation is not from God, and the reason is because that's not a good thing. God is not the author of anything evil. In fact, on the contrary, he's the author of everything evil. Good, but he, but he talks to us about this idea of temptation and why we should pay attention to it because he, it's this idea that temptation ultimately leads to sin, and sin is kind of like that monster that lives in us, right? That, that there's something about it, and if we don't keep it in check, that something really dangerous comes out of it. So God is not the author of temptation, but as I said, on the contrary, he's the author of every good and perfect thing, right? Look at what he says, though. In verse 18, verse 17, he says, look, whatever good and perfect is a gift from God. And then verse 18, but look at this. He says, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we out of all creation became his prized possession. Capture that again with me in verse 18. It says, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. It's important that we remember this because we're, we're going to talk about that a lot. That phrase there that James introduces to us, that he gives us his true word, it's going to set the tone for the rest of this book. What James is doing here is he's, he, he really wants us to come down and see the value of not just God himself, but the word to which he's given us, that this, is, this truly is a gift that there is something more to this book than just history and stories. But in fact, it really is a gift. And we're gonna see how it will be the foundation for everything else that James talks about in this entire book. All the topics that he addresses, he's gonna bring us back to this idea that don't forget the truth of this word, don't forget the gift to which it is. And, and once again, we'll see when we do that, we'll see by follow when we follow God in his words, we will start to experience. This idea of freedom. So let's jump into the first couple verses here. If you have a scripture, look at verse 19 with me. We're going to look at verses 19 through 21 if you want to follow along with me. James says, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your heart. For it has the power to save your souls. I'm convinced that one of the most difficult things that we have to accept and realize about ourselves is that there is a dark side to us, isn't there? We don't like to talk about this. Nobody wants to raise their hand. We don't want to dive too much into this. But one of the the stark realities about our lives is that underneath us, there is a certain darkness to us. There is a kind of a wicked side to which is is a major part of our lives. And no matter how virtuous we may think of ourselves, no matter how much good we have done in our lives... When we're honest with ourselves, when we really take the the moment to really reflect, we we understand the, this darkness that's in us. We understand this this hidden almost veiled evil that exists in our lives. And there's a lot of names for it. There's a lot of theories out there. There's a lot of psychological uh, theories. And there's even philosophical approaches as to why we are this way. And, and I always I liked what um, Professor Malcolm Turvey, he was a professor of film, and he was, at, he was talking about why do people like horror movies? Why do people like scary movies? And he, he came up with this name. He, he said that there's this pardon within us, and he called it the beast within. And, and his idea was that, that underneath the veneer of civility within us lies this monster that is drawn to evil things. And you may think that's a, that's a really harsh analogy, and, and is that really who we are? But the, the thing is, as we look into Scripture, we start to see that Scripture actually says this about us too, Jeremiah the prophet said that the heart is deceitful and wicked and it is sick. Now, once again, good morning to you. I know this is not what you wanted to hear. Don't worry, it gets better. Trust me. It's not what we love to hear about ourselves, but it is something that James is is very aware of. And in fact, James is aware of it in his own heart as well as the heart of those to whom he's writing to. So you you can call it whatever you want, but Scripture is very clear on what this, quote, beast within us is. It's called sin. All of us have it. All of us are guilty, myself included. There is that darkness that we are ultimately born with that takes on the form of a monster or whatever you want to call it. And for James, he points it out. He he, he talks about one of these beasts in particular. You see, he realizes that the sin within us, the beast that's within us, has an endless supply of expressions, that it can take on many different forms, it can show itself to people in many different forms, and one of which that James points out here is the expression of anger. Now, it's interesting because most of us know that not all anger is necessarily bad. All right, today's Palm Sunday, right? We're celebrating the moment when Christ walks into Jerusalem and the people are welcoming. But here's what's funny to me. I don't know why it's called Palm Sunday because the reason it's called Palm Sunday, I get it, is Jesus is riding in and people are welcoming and they've got palm branches. That's not the most exciting part of the story, is it? Do you remember what Jesus does? Right after that, he walks into the temple of God, and what does he see? He sees all these money changers, and he calls it a den of thieves because people were just basically robbing each other, and what does he do? He goes in and he flips tables. Is that anger? Yeah. I don't know why we call it Palm Sunday. It needs to be called Flipping Tables Sunday. (laughs) That is far more memorable to me, and yet Jesus was righteous in his anger. But sadly for most of us, In most cases, anger is a beast that does not, as James says here, produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, I'm not 100% sure why James chooses the topic of anger here. He could have picked a lot of different expressions of sin and evil, but he chooses to pick the topic. of of anger. And and though I'm not 100% sure, I I think it's understandable because when we we think about this particular group of people, we know that they had been extremely persecuted, that many of them had been displaced by the Roman government. They were kind of diasporas all throughout the land because the government had kicked them out. They were, obviously, they were battling temptations and all of which are, are ingredients to help fuel and create a negative attitude and one that can lead to unrighteous anger. And, or maybe the reason that James just chooses the topic of anger is simply because it is so prevalent. Every single person struggles with anger. There's not a person in this room, myself included, that does not struggle with anger to some degree. That notion that someone has an anger problem, that's misleading to me because everybody has an anger problem. Now, I agree that some struggle more so, especially in how they express it, but the idea that, that some people struggle with anger and others don't, that's just not true. All of us have anger. All of us have pride in our lives, and I promise that that, that will exhort itself into some form of anger eventually, because when you when you... Uh, boil down the ultimate root or definition of what anger is. Anger is is when we've been wronged by somebody, but the the second part of the definition is what I think we forget is that, and then we want some form of payment back for it. Anger is you've done something to me, and now I want something in, in result. Think about how often that plays out in your life. See, we, we, we want to limit anger to violent up uh, outbursts. We want to limit anger to, you know, just even flipping over tables, something like that. But that's not always how anger expresses itself. Anger comes out in very subtle ways for a lot of ways. How many of you feel angry in your mind, but you may not express it all the time? The answer is all of us. We all struggle with this, this the prevalency of anger in our lives, and as we said, when it's left unchecked, it can become dangerous and wicked and consuming, and we can fall into the, the sin of anger. So James knows this, and, and look what he says. He, he gives us one of, the, one of the best proverbial sayings in all of the Bible. He says, when it comes to that, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry, which is a great phrase, in fact, I encourage you to memorize that. It is a great thing to practice when we feel angry, especially towards somebody else, that we, that we pause, that we reflect. We be slow to get angry, slow to speak, quick to listen. But, here, but I don't want you to miss the most important part because the key is actually in verse 21 there. He says, so yeah, make sure you're quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to, angry, slow to get angry. But look again in verse 21. Get rid of the filth and evil in your life and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts. For it has the power to save your soul. Notice what James does here. He gives us a great proverbial saying here. He says, you know, yeah, be, be slow in these things, quick in these things. It's almost like he takes us to the, to the thousand-foot view of something so specific as anger, but then he backs up and he says, but remember really what this is all about. We need to categorize something like anger for what it really is. It's evil. It's filth. And then the solution to that, as we see, is found in the Word of God. We need to get rid of the filth and evil in our lives, and we need to replace it with the word of God. This idea of filth, by the way, James uses that word uh, filth. He says that, you know, we need to get rid of something, things that are evil and things that are filthy. And that word that he uses there is actually the word for defilement, right? And, and when we think about the word defilement, defilement often is, is, is the great enemy and the attacker of what identity is all about. And it's interesting here because what James is saying is that we need to get rid of the evil and the filth in our lives. Why? Because what it's doing is affecting the true nature and the true identity of who we are. We are never meant to be image bearers of evil or things that are defiling or things that are filthy. No, on the contrary, what Scripture teaches us is that we are image bearers of God. We're to be image bearers of good. We're to be image bearers of of Jesus, as we'll talk about here in just a little bit here. And this is why it it drives me crazy sometimes when I hear people use the excuse of, well, that's just who I am. You know, people find themselves down, down a difficult path and they're making mistakes and say, well, that's just who I am. No, it's not. That's not who you are. That's not who I am. Who you and I are, and our true self are image bearers of God. Anything short of that is a shortcoming of our true identity. We're not made for unrighteous anger. We're not made to be liars, cheaters, deceivers. We're not made for pride or mistreatment of others. No, James says, get rid of that. We have to go through the garden of our lives, as James says, and we got to find those weeds, those things in our lives that are negative, and we got to figure out a way to get them out and replace them, as James says, humbly accept the word that God has planted in your heart. And here's the good news. God will help us do it. God will help you do it. It's not left up to our own abilities, because we'll see here in a little bit, that won't actually happen. You won't actually get anywhere if it's all left up to yourself. So the good news is God helps us do it. So how do we do that? Look with me in verse 22 here. Let's continue on. James says this, But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. Now, We've talked about this idea, of the process of weeding out the bad and planting God's truth. We've talked about this before many times here, right? That you can't just do one thing, you've got to do the next step, right? So the, the first step seems to imply that we need to look around and be aware of the things that are evil, the things that are filthy in our lives. We need to yank those up and we need to replant them with what is good. But notice here that all of this depends on how much value we place on the person of God and his word, because if if all we're doing is saying well I don't really I want to get rid of this bad stuff in my life but I but I'm not willing to put in the good then we haven't valued what how good God actually is we haven't valued the how amazingly rich and fruitful God's word is if we if we're not taking it and and putting it into the areas of those of that filth and that evil but James's command is straightforward for us here. This is the part that I love about James. He doesn't mince words. He comes to us and he says, so when you're doing that, we need to understand we can't just simply hear God's word. We need to follow it. This is the command for us as people who follow Christ, that we should not just be knowledgeable of God's word. We should not just be able to even recite it out of memory. He says James is calling us something to something greater and bigger. And He says that's all fair and well but we need to obey God's word. We need to listen to it and to do anything less is foolish. We're deceiving ourselves. It's almost like For instance, let's say you wanted to build a house, and you say, well, I don't really know how to do that. But somebody comes up to you, and they say, okay, well, here's what what I'll do for you. I'm going to give you a list of every single thing you need, and I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. Every single instruction down to the finest detail, here's everything you need to know. And it's like we've taken that and saying, meh, I don't want anything to do with that. God has given us everything He needs. We need. He's given us all that we need to know Him, to pursue Him, to to battle the temptations of life, to avoid the pitfalls of sin. And so James says, "So don't throw all that away." Now, this is the part that I really like. So I, I brought I brought a little demonstration for you this morning, because I I just I love this analogy. This this one particularly connects with me here. So it, you saw how James references this idea of the mirror, right? I'm going to position it a little like this. Y'all be praying this thing doesn't fall for me, okay? All right, this, this is what I love, all right? It's interesting. Look again here in verse, um, oops, wrong passage, in verse 23 with me here, right? For if you listen to God's word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. Now, here's what's interesting, okay? The the, the New Living Translation doesn't actually do justice on this passage that well, because in the original language, believe it or not, James actually says it's like a male, okay? This is key. It's like when a man goes up to a mirror. This is why this is funny, okay? Think about this morning for just a sec, okay? Men, what did you do before you came here in the bathroom? How long did you spend looking at this? I'll demonstrate what I did. Okay, you ready? Okay, beard looks good. Good. I didn't even look and see if anything was in my teeth. I swear, I'm not that's not that's not, I'm not making that up. I looked at myself. I said, "Meh, all right. Yeah, I will probably need to get a haircut soon." All right. All of less than a minute is how much time I spent looking at this. Man, how how many of you can relate to me on that one? Okay. Ladies, how many of you can relate to me on that one? (laughs) Notice this. This is interesting, all right? My wife this morning, what does she do? She goes into the mirror. She has two, by the way. She has the big one, and then she has a separate one that can flip, and it's got the magnification and all that, right? Right? What does she do? She's looking, and she's saying, Oh, gosh, okay, I need to fix my hair, I got to put the makeup on, I need to, oh, gosh, got a little bit of earwax in there, I don't want that. I'm not saying she does that, don't tell her that. But she looks more intently at it, doesn't she? And it's interesting, 2,000 years ago, men and women really aren't that different, are they? James says, look, it's kind of like when a guy walks up to a mirror. A guy walks up to the mirror, takes us a quick glance and says, yeah, it's good. All right, works for me. The problem James describes for us is that this is often what we do with the truth of God. This is often what happens when we look at God and his word. We take a quick glance. We see what we want to see. But we don't take the intentional time to really look at ourselves. We don't take the time to really see what is here. We fail to ask ourselves difficult questions like, Am I living a God-honoring life? Is there an area of sin in my life that I need to confess? Is Is there a temptation in my life that if I'm not careful, I know it's going to lead into sin? Maybe it's simply because we just don't want to look in the mirror too long of God's word because we're afraid of what it will tell us. Whatever it is, the sad thing about it is when we fail to do that, we actually miss out on the blessing Of God and what He can give us. Look at the next verse with me, verse 25. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and you do what it says and you don't forget what you've heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Notice that phrase again with me the perfect law that sets you free. Doesn't that sound like an oxymoron to you? Right? This idea that we'll do what you're told and then you will be free. There's a part of us and perhaps it's that beast that's within all of us that wants to fight that and say, that's not what freedom is. I... That's that's ironic that you would say that, well, if I just follow everything the way you want me to do it, then I'll find freedom. Because our desire is, is to say, well, no, freedom is my ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want it, without consequence. That is what freedom is, and yet that's not what Scripture tells us freedom is. Freedom needs to be evaluated from what Scripture is. Our inclination is to define freedom based on our own pride, based on our own wants. So when we look at this, this phrase here, that when we follow the perfect law, it brings about freedom, it brings about two questions for us here. The first, what then is this law? Okay, well, if there is a, if you are claiming, James, that there is such thing as a law that brings about freedom, then what law are you referring to? That's the first question. The second question, then, then... What are we being set free towards? Where does the freedom ultimately take us? Because in my mind, once again, James, freedom should be, first off, no laws, and it should be ultimately allowing us to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. But let's start with the first question here. What is the law that James is referring to? Well, we know right off the bat it's not just any law because what does James calls it? He calls it the perfect law. Now, this would have struck James's reader, the the Jewish people, in in a really different way. Because as Jews, the, the, the Jewish people had a unique understanding of what law was about. Because as Jewish people, they would have their entire life been raised under what was called the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law, if you're you're familiar, was a list of 613 principles that God gave forth to Moses himself. And it acted, in in a lot of ways, it acted like the Constitution for Israel. It, It set forth very practical guidelines for what holy living was all about. I mean, it covered everything from farming to relationships, you name it. The law set forth what the Jewish people were expected to do in terms of what living a holy life was all about. Now, it didn't take... The Jewish people very long to realize something, though, about the law and about themselves, which was this, that they could never perfectly follow it. No one was ever capable of following all 613 rules every single day, every day of their life. No one could do it. And God understood that. That was the point. He wanted them to understand, of course you're not going to. Of course you're going to fail, but I'm going to meet you in your failure. I'm going to forgive you. I want you to trust me. The the, the law was never meant to save everybody from everything. It was a a tutor. It taught the people about the person of God and what he could do for them. It's not until thousands of years later that Jesus comes on the scene that the law undergoes a major change. Remember in, in the Gospels, Jesus is talking about the law. He's talking about it with the Pharisees, these people who thought they were perfect at following the law. You remember what Jesus told them? He said, look, I didn't come to, to abolish the law. I'm not here to get rid of it. In fact, what I'm here to do is fulfill it. Because Jesus, the only perfect person in history, is the only one who actually managed to live out every single rule perfectly. He was without sin. And when he does that, he ushers in a new law. By fulfilling one law, he ushers in A new law for us, a perfect law, a singular law, and a law completely centered around him. It's called the law of grace. You see, the law of grace is the very center and foundation of what it means to be a Christ follower. And there's a lot of definitions I can give you, but here's, here's the single shortest best definition I can give you. The law of grace is simply this. It is by grace we are saved through faith and faith alone. That's it. One thing. We are saved from our sins by one thing. Faith in Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. That's it. We're all broken. We're all sinners. We deserve death. We deserve punishment. We've been separated from God because of our sin. We are left to our own demise, and there's nothing that any of us could do about it. And yet... This is the hope of the gospel is that despite all that, Jesus comes down, he lives the perfect life, he dies on the cross for our sins, and he ushers in this new law that says, I will take care of all of that for you, and the only thing I ask in return is your faith. The only thing I want, one thing, not 613 things, one thing, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe it. That's what grace is. It's an undeserved gift. That's the the first question. So what is the perfect law? The perfect law is the law of grace, that we would have faith in him. That's what we need to stare intently into. The problem is far too often when we do look in the mirror, it's covered up with lies and nonsense that keep us from experiencing the true freedom, which is the second question, what are we being freed towards? You see, even when we do take the time to honestly go up to the mirror and intentionally look, there's, there's a problem here. You see, we want to look at the mirror, and, and the problem is it becomes clouded up, right? It becomes, it's it got fingerprints all over it. It becomes all murky. We, we, we can't really see our true self in this because there's too much deception that's covering it up. There's too many lies out there that keep us from understanding what our true identity in Christ is all about, right? So we, we believe things about our self-worth. We believe things about what is good and right in the world. We, we, miss, we lack grace and understanding towards people. We don't understand what forgiveness is. All of this is creating a murky image for us that prevents us from seeing what is our true identity in Christ, And we can try all we want to go up to the mirror, and we can try to clean it as best we can. And this is what most of the world does. Most of the world goes up to the mirror and says, I'll try to make it clean myself. But it's not until God himself comes up to the mirror and wipes it clean for us through the love of Christ that we're able to see who we really are. See, God wants you to come to the mirror. He wants us to look intently into it. He wants us to come to the mirror, which is his word. He wants us to see two things. Yes, he wants us to see our depravity. He wants us to see our brokenness. But he also wants us to see who we really are and who we really are as image bearers of Christ. He wants us to see that, yes, there is that veil, that that darkness that overclouds your heart. But because of the work of the cross, that the, the heart can be made clean, that you can start to see yourself for who you really are. Ultimately, when we look at the mirror, what we need to see is Christ in us. The law of grace is a reminder, that, though, that the only way this is possible is through the work of the cross. So what is the perfect law? Grace. It answers the second question. Then what are we being set free towards? And it's simply this. The freedom that we're being set towards is understanding and knowing that God is in control of all of it. We're not on our own. God has given us everything that we need. You see, there is a freedom that we experience when we recognize our own brokenness. There's a freedom in recognizing that we're designed with purpose. There's a freedom in knowing that we're created for one thing and yet we're broken and, and and we're misled into what that actually is. There's a freedom in understanding that it all begins in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, here, here's where Michael Jackson had it wrong. Like, Where am I going with this? This is where Michael Jackson had it wrong. You remember the famous song, Man in the Mirror? Good song. Don't get me wrong, okay? But listen to the lyrics Michael Jackson said. I'm starting with the man in the mirror, asking him to change his ways. But listen to this. No message could ever have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, some of you are singing in your head right now, take a look at yourself and then make a change. Michael comes up to the mirror and he says, I don't like that, I want to change that. Here's the problem, that's only going to take you so far. God comes up to the mirror with you and says, let me clean that off for you. Let me tell you what is actually true. Let me remind you of who you are in me. And let me set you free from your own pursuits. God's been convicting me on something the past kind of six months, which is it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's this idea that not all problems are meant to be solved. And I, I'll be honest with you, when, I first, when God first started talking to me about this, I, I said, I don't like that, God. <laughs> I think problems are meant to be solved. If I have the ability to do something, why shouldn't I step in and do it? And yet, God had to work in that in my life. I mean, he still is. For me to understand that really my pursuit of wanting to fix problems, I had to realize something that there was something evil in my own heart there. And this is the part I didn't like. Because when I actually took the time to intently stare and I, and I looked at God's word, what I realized about that desire Was that it was filled with pride. That my desire to fix problems was nothing really more than my ability to bring myself pride. Freedom came in understanding that God knows all the problems, He's willing to take all of them, and He says, Would you just get behind me and trust me? As we begin to wrap up today, I really want to invite you to chew on this phrase don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. It's incredibly easy to hear a phrase like that, and and we want to instantly go to the defense mode of of seeing that as something controlling or something that is taking over us. But I want to invite you this morning to consider it with the perspective of love. That in obeying God's word, not just hearing it, that we would realize... He has great plans for us. He wants us to be set free from evil in our lives. He wants us to know the joy of freedom that is found in him and him alone. And that, in fact, no matter what someone believes, you will always serve something or someone. So why not let it be our creator who designed us, who loved us, who has plans for us? So I invite you, take some time to look in the mirror. Not just this one, but this one as well and remember your true identity in Christ and the price that was paid for it. And in doing so, we may have the ability to trust God, to listen to God, and do what he has called us to do. And that's our bottom line today. Don't just listen to God's word, but do what it says. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we're thankful for the fact that our identity is rooted in you. We're thankful that We oftentimes come up short, and we want so desperately to take everything on our own. But, Father, we want to find freedom in you. We want to understand that life begins with you, life continues with you, and and you want to set us free from these bondages to pursue you wholly and deeply. And in that, Father, may we find the joy. You said, Jesus, that truth will set us free. And I I pray this morning that everybody would find freedom in you, no matter the circumstances that we go through. Thank you for our time this morning. Amen.